0: now that we've seen that we're supposed to be lovingly devoted to one another, and we've seen what that means, we have to ask, has there ever been a time in history when the church has actually put that into practice? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Now. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for downloading this message today. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, November the 8th of 2010. And as always, I am your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you again for joining us today. It is a blessing to have you here. Uh, I know that you guys realize that I was, or maybe you realize, if you listened to last week's message, you knew that I was running in a half marathon this last weekend. You know that I've been training for this for like, uh, almost a year for 11 months, and I did it. I ran uh, the half marathon down in Fort Smith for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes on Saturday, and uh, man, it was brutal. Just to let you guys know how it went. I mean, it it was good. I I really did enjoy it, and I can say this: there was never a time where where my lungs were an issue, where I felt winded or out of breath or anything like that. It started off uh, the, the first hour. It was in the 20s, which is awfully cold for running in. Uh, it was 26 degrees when when they said go. <laughs> and uh, I've never run in weather that cold. But uh you know that's a little bit hard on the muscles and everything. so the first hour uh, I felt pretty good. The second hour it started to warm up a little bit and when we got to about the eleventh mile, there was a a really big hill uh, along the course and it Really just took everything I had out of me. Uh, I started cramping up really bad, really bad in my in my calves, in my thighs, uh, my toes were hurting pretty badly, and honestly it was it was just willpower. Uh, it was just being mentally strong that got me across the finish line because uh, by the time I got across man i I was just ready to collapse. It was pretty rough, and uh, maybe if I would have been better prepared for running in cold weather. I don't know. I felt like that really took a lot of my endurance out uh, running in the cold weather. But, um, but hey, praise the Lord, I did it. Uh, I feel good about it. The only downside now uh, is, well, you know, I'm a little bit sore, but actually I, I kind of like that. But I got two black toes, uh, and that's something that, um, that indicates that uh, the shoes weren't a good fit or maybe my toenails were a little bit too long or something. But yeah, those toenails are going to fall off, and they are hurting like crazy today. So anyway, I did it, and uh, I am looking forward to doing it again. There's actually a half marathon in Austin at the end of January, and I'm looking at doing that one uh, for my next project. So anyway, I'll keep you up to speed on that. I wanted to remind you guys that this month, November, uh, everybody who makes a donation of $30 or more or signs up for regular bank drafts through PayPal to support our ministry, is going to get a copy of William Lane Craig's newest book called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. And this is a great book. William Lane Craig has debated the most uh, educated, intellectual atheists in the world, and he makes these guys look like fools. Uh, he, he really does. He's probably the best debater of our times, uh, as far as Christian apologetics goes, uh, he is fantastic. This book is going to equip you uh, even more to do apologetics, to witness to people who don't share our faith. And this book will enable you to do it with more confidence than you had before and with uh, with more precision, uh, just cutting straight to the chase a little bit easier. So anyway, uh, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and on the right-hand side, there is a support box. If you click on that and give either a one-time donation of $30 or more, or if you sign up to support our ministry regularly through PayPal, you're going to get a copy of this book. So anyway, I want to bless you guys with this book, and if you don't get it from me, get it for yourself somewhere else. This is a book that is really going to help you uh, defend your faith and reason with unbelievers. So, anyway, one final update uh, on Caitlin, uh, and that is that she has she's in critical condition, obviously, and she needs a bone marrow transplant. So, um, this week, I'm going to go down and get myself tested. It's very difficult for them to find a match for bone marrow, but uh, I'm willing to at least try uh, to see if I'm a match for her. I'm willing to undergo the, the procedure, if that's what it takes to save her life. And uh, so anyway, if you're in Northwest Arkansas, I know that most people aren't who listen to this, but uh, if you are in Northwest Arkansas and you're interested in uh, getting tested for bone marrow, get in touch with me uh, and I, I can get you in touch with the right people to do that. Anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, Lord. I pray, Lord, that our lesson today would teach us and strengthen us to become more and more like you in all of our ways, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is part two of our series on, uh, on Romans chapter 12 verse 10, and this is out of a, an eight-part series, no, I'm just kidding, this is the last part uh, of <laughs> of this series that we're doing on Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, we've spent the, the previous few lessons talking about the act of love. And Paul told us in verse 9, if you'll remember, to love without hypocrisy. And then he told us, as followers of Jesus, to be devoted to each other. He wrote here in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We saw that the type of devotion that Paul is talking about here is the type of devotion that a husband and wife should have toward one another. It's the type of devotion that should characterize marriage. It's the type of devotion that a parent and child should share for one another. And there's a a special bond that we should have with someone in our own family. And Paul's told us that that's the type of bond that we should feel with one another as Christ followers as well. But what does that look like? How can we say that we're being faithful to this instruction, to this command, when we have churches that are splitting and dividing everywhere we look. And look at what many churches are splitting over. Things like traditional versus contemporary worship, or wearing one's Sunday best versus coming to church as you are, or which translation is being used by the church. I mean, these are silly issues in the big picture. When church members aren't willing to work together, to find a way to compromise, to work things out. What happens? Churches fall apart, and it's indeed rare that church members are willing to work together in a completely self-sacrificial way. The problem is that the vast majority of churchgoers today, here in Western culture, go to church to be served rather than to serve one another. See, it's easy to be on the receiving end of service, it requires a lot more to be on the giving end. Did you realize that the average church employee, and that includes senior or or lead pastors, youth pastors, worship leaders, etc., the average church employee stays at their church for just short of two years? Two years! And why do you suppose that is? well, that might not even be the worst statistic out there. Here are some more, which might be maybe even more significant and definitely more revealing. Recent studies and surveys done by the Barna Group and by Focus on the Family have revealed, first of all, that 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. Friends, that is 18,000 people leaving the ministry every single year. Or how about this one? 50% of pastors' marriages end in divorce. 80%, 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as pastors. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of supporting their family or making a living. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates, 80% who enter the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years. And finally, 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. Well, what do you suppose is the root cause of every single one of these statistics? You know these are these are all things which happen when somebody has spent their life just giving and giving and serving and serving and pouring themselves out to other people until they reach the end of themselves and something causes them to feel burned out or exhausted, which will happen to absolutely everybody at some point. And when they reach that point, the expectations that people have for them. Don't go away. People are still expecting to be served rather than eagerly serving. So do most churches demonstrate the type of devotion that we're instructed to have toward one another? Well, I'd have to say absolutely not. Uh, But we learn most effectively when we have a model to follow after. So the question then becomes, where do we find a church in which every member is peacefully coexisting peacefully lovingly devoted to every other member. Now I'm I'm quite sure that the Holy Spirit knew that we would need to see a model church, and to know what this intimate devotion looks like when it's put into practice. So to find a church that modeled this perfectly, we actually don't need to look any further than the book of Acts, where we find the early church living in harmonious, loving devotion to one another. As we read through the first four chapters of the book of Acts, we see that literally, Thousands upon thousands of people are hearing the gospel message and are thus trusting in Jesus for their salvation, and it's becoming a big enough religious movement that the Jewish leaders in that day and age were starting to—they're starting to sweat a little bit. They're feeling threatened, so they imprison the apostles, they beat them in an attempt to shut them up. But the apostles aren't swayed by the way they're being treated. Instead, what do they do? They Pray for boldness, and their prayers are answered. Starting with uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. So if the religious leaders thought that abusing the apostles would stop the gospel from spreading, their plan basically backfired. If they thought that the apostles were speaking too boldly before, well, guess what? All of a sudden, The boldness of the apostles was increased and the gospel message continued to be spread and heard. And now we come to the point where we immediately have to acknowledge that the early church was living in a way which demonstrated the type of loving devotion toward one another that Paul is instructing us here in Romans chapter 12, verse 10 to have. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we read, and the congregation of those who believed were of One heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. See, they were all of one heart and one soul, Luke tells us. Now, if this isn't a picture of devotion, I don't know what is. They were so completely devoted to one another that they were pooling their resources to meet the needs of everyone and anyone. Among them. Nobody was being left out. Nobody was feeling like they were being taken advantage of. Nobody was feeling like they were the only one giving or serving. We read, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. That's in uh, chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. See, this is a picture of what it looks like when a community of Christ followers is living in loving devotion to one another. Now, just to clarify, I am not saying or advocating uh, that we should all surrender everything that we have and live in a compound together or anything. We don't need to go out and sell everything that we have. Uh, What I think we should take note of here and apply to our lives today is the attitude that they had toward their material possessions. We often hold our, our things with a clenched fist as if they belong exclusively to us, and we're just not going to let go of them. The fact is, friends, that we've been bought at a very high price by the blood of Jesus. He has ownership of us. As our master, he owns everything that we have. Nothing belongs to us. Nothing not even our own lives. If we don't own our own lives, how are we to think that we own our cars or our homes or the money that we have in the bank or our iPods or computers or anything? None of it belongs to us. It all belongs to Jesus. All of it, our homes, our cars, every resource we have at our disposal are things that the Lord has made us stewards over for a season. The question we should constantly be asking ourselves is, how can I put this possession to use for God's glory? Or how can I serve somebody else with this possession? Paul instructed the Philippians writing, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's from Philippians chapter two, verse three. You see, We can't be, we cannot be lovingly devoted to one another if we consider ourselves before we consider the needs of others. Paul calls that selfishness or empty conceit. Instead, he tells his audience of Christ followers to be humble, thinking of others as being more important than themselves. Now, that's not always an easy thing to do, right? Loving other people that way can be very, very difficult. But here's the thing. If we know how to love God properly, then we will naturally love one another properly as well. If we loved each other properly, I have no doubt that those statistics that I just read to you would go away. There are certainly different ways that love is shown to one another, however. We've got to take note of that. It can be demonstrated by serving one another. It can be demonstrated uh, by giving to one another. It can be demonstrated by just lending something uh, to somebody who needs something that we have. But there are also times when it's demonstrated through discipline as well. See, when you love somebody, you don't enjoy disciplining them. Just ask any parent. But to love someone means to want the greatest good for them, which often entails the difficult and heartbreaking task of confronting somebody who's in sin, drawing the line and asking them to acknowledge and turn away from their sin, knowing that turning from their sin is the greatest good. It's in their own best interest. Now, this is a, a Delicate, delicate issue, however, and many of us have probably seen this done the wrong way. When somebody's confronted in their sin the wrong way, let me just tell you from my experience problems arise, people get hurt. Let me tell you a story. When I was serving on a mission in Eastern Europe, an issue arose among us, in which the native host, whose English was very, very limited, uh, the native host believed that our translator, who was also a native, was constantly and intentionally mistranslating things. And so thus, the host believed that the translator wasn't accurately translating for us when we spoke, and that the translator was mistranslating to us what she, the host, was trying to say. Now, within one day The ministry of our team of missionaries was completely shut down as suspicions arose among us. Meanwhile, our translator had no idea what was going on. He had no idea what the source of the tension on our team was. Nobody had gone to him. Nobody had gone to him to confront his apparent sin. And I knew that Jesus had given us a very specific prescription for how to deal with confronting another believer in sin. And so I tried to follow that. In Matthew chapter 18 verse 15, Jesus said, "If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private." Get that part, in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. See, the host was unwilling to do so. She was unwilling to go to him because culturally speaking, that was unheard of. So I went to our translator and I told him about what was being said and asked him if there was any truth to the accusations. Well, he he immediately denied any and all wrongdoing. And this is pretty common when somebody is in sin. And when we see somebody who we know is knee-deep in sin, what happens? You know, we tend to get emotional. We get upset. And when we get emotional or upset, it's, it's really easy for us to say things that we don't mean. It's also easy for the person who's being accused of sinning to turn the tables and start accusing us of wrongdoing, whether such accusations are true or not. Well, knowing this to be the case, Jesus continued here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, saying, But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. So, In other words, if the person who's being confronted tries to turn the tables, it's necessary to have witnesses who are able to refute their testimony. So I did this. I brought one of the other English-speaking missionaries with me to confront our translator. And she basically just verified everything that I had told him, and that it was indeed what the native host was accusing him of. And again, he denied any wrongdoing. Now, if we had just simply left it at that, You know, maybe the issue would have been resolved. Maybe it wouldn't have been. I don't know. But Harmony would not have been restored to the team of missionaries because our native host would have continued to believe that he was intentionally and constantly mistranslating. So the division in the team would have persisted, knowing that that's how Human nature is, Jesus continued in verse 17, instructing his followers if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Friends, this is serious stuff. We're talking about the possibility of disfellowship here, kicking somebody out of our circles until they're ready to acknowledge and turn away from their sin. Now, I have to admit that at this point, uh, when I'm confronting our translator, uh, I was scared to death. Because if we had to start treating uh, our translator like a Gentile tax collector, so to speak, we would have had nobody to translate for us. Nevertheless, uh, what I did is I I arranged for all the missionaries to be brought together. Uh, We brought the team together, and we addressed the accusations toward the translator in front of the group. Three hours later, after a lot of tears had been shed together, uh, we came to the realization that it was all just a big misunderstanding. Our unity was not only preserved because we addressed this issue this way, but our unity was strengthened. Why? Because we addressed the situation in a biblical manner. And that night, friends, that night, I will never forget this, our team saw the number of Christ followers in that village grow from 12 Christ followers to more than 30 now the point that I want us to see here is that being lovingly devoted to one another sometimes means confronting another believer in their sin as a means, only as a means of restoring fellowship, bringing them back to abiding in Christ, and that's exactly what we see in First Corinthians chapter five, verses one to five. Here we see that Paul has heard about a Christ follower in in this community who's having. Sexual relations with his father's wife, which is actually a sin that's punishable by death under the law of Moses. So Paul writes here in verse 5 Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, a couple of things to notice here. First of all, this guy is not turning away from his sin. Secondly, The fact that he's not turning away from his sin isn't going to cause him to lose his salvation. He's not abiding in Christ, but he's not going to lose his salvation. Rather, it's going to cause the destruction of his flesh, presumably his flesh nature. So this man became like a Gentile tax collector to them. In other words, they kicked him out of their fellowship. They made him go away. They stopped associating with him. And what happened? We find out in 2 Corinthians that the man acknowledged and turned away from his sin once he had been disfellowshipped. And Paul encouraged them to eagerly and with open arms bring him back into their fellowship. Paul also wrote to the Galatians instructing them, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted that's from Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 now people will say wait a minute didn't Jesus tell us not to judge you know that whole judge not lest ye be judged thing no he didn't he told us not to judge hypocritically and that's what Paul's saying here too so back to our text here in Romans. What does it mean to be devoted to one another in brotherly love? It means to be looking out for the best interests of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ before looking out for our own best interests. It means being more eager to serve and to share with one another than we are to be served. Now, we shouldn't miss the fact that there's one more instruction that Paul lays out here in verse 10. He says, Give preference to one another in honor. That's the NASB translation. Now, we've already seen that giving preference to one another as followers of Christ is an aspect of demonstrating love for one another. But I don't think Paul is just reiterating the same stuff here. The idea that Paul's getting at here is to honor others before ourselves. The English Standard Version, the ESV, translates this verse as saying, Outdo one another in showing honor. And I think that's maybe a little bit of a a more accurate translation than we get from other translations. But we should also understand that culturally speaking, this would have resonated with Paul's audience. We should remember that the Caesars ruled over the Roman Empire at the time that this was written, right? Now, a Roman soldier would have had to have taken an oath to never give preference to another in honor, above Caesar. So what Paul's saying here is that we should honor our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that a Roman soldier would have honored Caesar. Just like a Roman soldier would have been expected to be willing to lay down his life for Caesar, we too should be so lovingly devoted to one another that we'd be willing to do the same for them. We're all saved and sealed by the same Holy Spirit and we're all called to unity with each other. Is it easy? Well, not always, but it starts with a proper perspective of ourselves. And if we can do that, the rest is a whole lot easier. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the instruction and the correction that we receive for living in uh, in righteousness that's acceptable to you. Lord, we do want our lives to be a living sacrifice to you. So I pray that you will teach us day by day, hour by hour, and sometimes minute by minute to live in light of the reality that's revealed in this verse, to put others above ourselves, to love other believers, and to view that as a priority in order that we will glorify you. Lord, we do realize that our flesh nature tends to get in the way of us loving perfectly, but you have loved us perfectly. And so I pray that you will teach us to love others the same way that you've loved us. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for this time. We pray that you will bless and preserve this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.